Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution. Welcome back to the Superhumanize podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about the potential of human longevity and the science of aging with a fascinating figure in the field, Dr. Alexandra Bowser. A co-founder at Apollo Health Ventures, Alexandra stands for groundbreaking research and entrepreneurial innovation with the focus of extending human health span. With a PhD from Harvard Medical School, her expertise in cellular aging's molecular mechanisms is foundational for understanding of longevity. Alexandra honed her skills in BCG's healthcare practice, specializing in biopharma strategy, an experience that now informs her approach to selecting the next generation of health and longevity startups. In our conversation, we look at the challenges and ethical considerations of extending human lifespan, as well as the incredible potential in the future of longevity. From integrating longevity interventions into the healthcare system to the societal implications of extended lifespans, we cover the spectrum of topics that sit at the heart of the longevity debate. Join us as Alexandra shares the criteria for investing in biotech companies, the potential of current projects at Apollo Health Ventures, and her vision for the field's evolution over the next decade. This episode is not just a peek into the future of health and longevity. It's a roadmap for how we might navigate the complexities of extending human life, the impact on societal structures, and the ethical landscapes we must walk through. Welcome to a conversation that challenges the boundaries of what it means to live a long, healthy life. Alexandra, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. I am so glad we get the opportunity to connect. You're in Kapstadt, I'm in Los Angeles. I love modern technology, and this makes this conversation possible. So glad to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I actually learned about you and your work as I was viewing a, a documentary for the German network set the F, which I also had the pleasure to participate in. And I really got fascinated with the scope of your work, also your background. And so I'd like to give the audience a little bit of a um, backstory to yourself. You have a, from at least from my layperson's perspective, an eclectic scientific background. You are uh, a trained pharmacist. You studied at Harvard and you went from being a trained pharmacist, to focusing on longevity and aging research. What inspired you to that? So initially, I always was interested in curing or developing new interventions to cure diseases that we currently cannot cure. Yeah. And back then, I was thinking of specific diseases as the current medical system is focused on, like each disease at a time. And also in pharmacy school, that's what we were learning. And eventually I went into cancer research and I figured cancer is like the most horrible disease that I can think of. And I really want to work on that one disease. And while I was doing cancer research, I was in, in Arizona at the Arizona Cancer Center. I learned about a field called aging research, or, or some people refer to it as geroscience. Basically back then, that was over 15 years ago, they were looking at animal models and deleting a single gene and able to extend this animal's lifespan by, by twofold. 
And I was just fascinated by that science. I was like, this is incredible. You don't only affect, you don't only affect one specific disease that an animal in that case, but eventually also a human would get. You could actually, by targeting this aging process, you could actually prevent all of these different diseases of aging, which is obviously uh, diseases like cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, cognitive disorder or dementia. And, and I realized that I could actually make a much larger impact if I could target the aging process. And, and then I decided to do my PhD in, in that space. And, and by going into, back then it was at Harvard Medical School, I was working on mitochondrial sirtuins. So sirtuins, people may be familiar with sirt one which is like the most well-known sirtuin. David Sinclair was one of the key scientists who discovered the yeast form of that and then worked on, on sirt one and my PI was, she did her PhD, she did her postdoc in the same lab where the sirtuins were discovered and then opened her lab at Harvard Medical School where she was then focusing on a mitochondrial sirtuins and really focusing on mitochondrial metabolism and different age-related diseases that may be associated with these. And I realized that there are so many mechanisms that are all interconnected when you go to these aging or, or yeah, Geroscience conferences, where back then it was really purely scientific focus, like all academics working on different aspects of aging. There's mTOR, which people may have heard of, mTOR, mTOR pathway, sirtuins, mitochondria, insulin signaling. There's so many different pathways that are associated with aging, and all of them have an effect by themselves, but all of them also affect each other. And it's just so fascinating to be in that space. And I really was hoping to do some drug development in that space. But back then, pharma companies were not really focusing or were not really thinking that way. And yeah, I then went into management consulting, worked in the traditional biopharma world and saw how pharma really evaluates different portfolio and portfolio projects and how they think about what actually makes a project valuable. And then we started in 2017, we started Apollo Health Ventures, which is a venture capital fund and company builder that is focusing on the science and the biology of aging, but really trying to bring these into clinical development in the way that a pharma company would also be interested in then helping to develop it making it attractive for a pharma company to help develop it. So that's really how I transitioned from pharmacy world to what we're now doing at Apollo, which is investing in the science of longevity or science of aging to really help develop new interventions to keep people healthy. Yes, and I, I truly think this is the new frontier. And we have, of course, outer space, and that is a... Gosh, what a topic that has become also in the collective consciousness. And the other thing is the inner space, in a way, and looking inside of humanity and optimizing and extending who we are by growth, by extending lifespan, by extending health span. I'm curious about the creating a, a venture in health and longevity is it's cutting edge. It's right now in the time, for me, one of the most exciting things you can be doing. 
And I'm curious, can you share your, some of your experience and key lessons you learned while co-founding Apollo Health Ventures? So I think early on we realized that, and I think now it's quite, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but we realized that aging is not a disease, right? Nobody considers aging to be something that you can cure with a pill. And so even though we know that the signs that we are developing or the the interventions that we are developing can, in an animal model at least, affect the aging uh, process and make them healthier for longer. Just translating that aspect into a human will likely not fly. And not because it's not going to extend the human's health span, it's because it's going to be so hard to measure that in a clinical trial. And even if we were able to measure it, who would be willing to pay for it except for people who are extremely wealthy. And by the time we have actually developed it, if we run this clinical trial to prove it, by that time, we're also out of IP. And there are so many considerations which really brought us to that strategy that you have to develop these in the current framework of how drug development is happening in the current regulatory boundaries that we have, which is you have to identify a clear disease indication that your drug or your intervention will have a, a positive impact on that is so significant that this drug will get approved and get into the clinic and patients can take it. It's, of course, first of all, you have to show that it's safe. I hope that generally for these longevity treatments, the chances that they are very safe will be much higher because at least in animals, they're keeping them healthy and living for longer. So they like the safe because they're making us healthier. And so that that's the first barrier usually. But then showing that they're really effective is, is really a challenge in clinical trials because you need to find the right patients at the right time of their disease. You need to measure the right markers to show that they're really getting healthier. And right now you're using the disease-associated markers that uh, the regulatory authorities are accepting to get these drugs approved. But I think that the vision that we have with that is going forward, we'll learn more about markers that we can measure that can give us a good estimate of our actual health status, not just like a disease marker, like blood glucose levels or cholesterol levels or something like that we may be used to when we go to get a, a regular checkup, but really a holistic assessment of our health status that we can then measure before and after taking such longevity drugs and really prove that we are indeed getting healthier by taking these drugs. And, and that's really the step-by-step the -step process. First, starting the disease, but then the long-term vision is that we will get these markers thanks to AI and, and all of the technological progress. Eventually, we'll know what a healthy person's biomarkers look like, and then we can develop these therapeutics and get approval for improvement or health span extension. But, but that's further down the road. And, and that's really, I think, the, the, the key realization that we had early on when we started. We, we just can't straight away go to that long-term vision. We just have to start with, with small steps. Fascinating. And these are intricacies, of course, from the outside that one is not necessarily aware of. 
Something else that really interests me, and whether it's from your studies at Harvard, whether it's from what you've experienced over the last years um, at Apollo Health Ventures, what are the most significant findings from your perception about cellular aging that could be targeted to increase mammalian and ultimately human health span? I don't know if you have heard about this interventions testing program. It's a program by the NIA, the National Institutes of Aging, and collaborating with three different centers across the U.S. that are all uh, running basically the same mouse lifespan study with the same compounds and basically a really rigorously designed lifespan experiment to show which interventions can robustly extend lifespan in in mice. Fair to to say, we're using mice. It's an easy model to study. They don't live too long to make it impossible to see an effect. They're close enough. They're mammalian animals, so it's close enough to a human to assume that there may be some conserved mechanisms, some conserved effects. And They initially found, and I think in 2009, they found a drug called rapamycin, which a lot of people may have heard of, significantly extended lifespan in these mice. And even if they started dosing it late in life, so I think the equivalent of the age of a mouse was like 60 years of a human or something, like don't quote me on that, but it was like relatively late in life, and it still had a pronounced effect on lifespan in in these, in these experiments. And they repeated it again, and they showed that if they started dosing it younger, it's even a higher effect, different dosages, easier dose response. So it's very robust data on rapamycin. So I think that's, for, for most people, that's a no-brainer that rapamycin is a very potent longevity drug. And, and one of our companies is actually focusing on rapamycin and, and trying to or already engineered out the potential negative side effects that you experience uh, when you're taking rapamycin, which is known as immune suppression, that rapamycin is currently being used for in the clinics, being used to help with patients with that receive a transplant to avoid uh, immune rejection. So it makes sense that it is immune suppressive. But if you want to take it for longevity, you actually don't want that immune suppressive effect. And so one of our companies has focused on engineering out that and they are now um, getting ready to start clinical trials uh, later this year. There are a couple of similar low-hanging fruits, I would say. There are a few that came out of the ITP that were really intriguing, that repeatedly demonstrated uh, beneficial effects. I think one one other that came out is 17-alpha-estradiol, which is a non-estrogenic estrogen (laughs) uh, compound, which is really interesting. And we're also looking into um, optimizing that. Um, More about that. What are the effects of it? So it, it, it extends lifespan, but interestingly, only in the male mice, huh. even though it doesn't have, or at least it seems to not have the estrogenic effects. So that's still, that's still under exploration. But it, it would be really interesting, especially because I'm not sure in which way the mice suffer from similar like menopause-related symptoms as humans, but chances are, and that's just my intuition, that the same drug could also help women as they lose their natural estrogen. 
but I don't know whether that's true. I'm just assuming that because it really has this effect in male mice to bring them back to the female mouse lifespan, which is uh, also in, in mice higher than the male lifespan. So that really would be really that's super intriguing to me. I've been learning so much and also had guests on this podcast talking about menopause, also talking about the complexity of, even if it's bioidentical, hormone replacement therapy and some women who just cannot take the, especially the estrogens, because they may have had a history of cancer or such. So this particular compound sounds really promising if it does transfer to humans. Yeah. Yeah. That's the next question, right? And initially we're just looking to really understand how it, it mediates its benefits because that's still the, the question and how we can actually optimize it to really be more and more targeted towards the longevity benefit. And then the next step is really to, to test whether it translates it to humans. So mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes. But yeah, it, it's super exciting and it seems so, so potent, at least in the animal studies that we thought that we have to, to take a bet on that. And Alexandra, I interrupted you. You had, I think, a third compound you wanted to dive into. It, yeah, not necessarily a compound. One other mechanism that is what, what I would consider a, a low-hanging fruit um, is autophagy, which a lot of people may be familiar with. We know autophagy is activated when you're fasting or when you're exercising, and it's known as this beneficial mechanism that cleans our cells, simply speaking. It's basically recycling damaged organelles and damaged proteins so that we can make new and healthy ones. Even rapamycin is known to induce autophagy to some extent. In animals, when you are genetically upregulating their autophagy, they also live longer. So it seemed quite obvious that in like developing an autophagy enhancer would likely have beneficial effects. And so one of our companies, actually one that we built ourselves out of our venture labs in, at Apollo, we, we are doing a lot of venture building, and uh, one of our companies is actually focusing on autophagy enhancers. We have a lot of different compounds targeting different targets, molecular targets, having different properties. Some are more focused on the brain, some are more focused on the periphery, which suggests that they may be relevant for different types of diseases as we are developing them. So that's another really, well, I would refer to as a no-brainer longevity drug. Yeah. That sounds exciting. The other company you mentioned that's focused on rapamycin is also super intriguing. There may be a, another one or two projects or startups that you can entice us with that Apollo Health Ventures is currently involved. Yeah, absolutely. One other company that's actually focused on the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people may be familiar with the ketogenic diet and that it's it's debatable what the longevity effect is. Some people claim that there is a longevity benefit of the ketogenic diet. But what it's currently being used for in the clinic is against uh, seizures. So certain pediatric epilepsies, kids have to be on a ketogenic diet to control their seizures. And this company, working with a scientist from UCLA, uh, have identified a combination of microbes that seem to be responsible for these beneficial effects of the ketogenic diet. And so just by combining these two different strains, they are able to mimic some of these benefits. 
And now this is basically a product that they're initially developing for people with epilepsies to basically allow them to not be on a ketogenic diet, but still have that benefit. But long-term, they also have data that suggests that it has benefits on other neurodegenerative or neuromuscular diseases like ALS. And so Mm -hmm. that could be really interesting if you could basically target a gut microbiome to then affect your brain. Uh, So it's it's this idea of the gut-brain axis. So that's a really interesting area. Absolutely. And that actually hits close to home. Uh, A very dear friend uh, lost his son to ALS. uh, And um, during that journey of supporting his son, uh, as he moved through the different stages of the disease, uh, our friend has built an incredible movement and also nonprofit in order to help eradicate this disease. So I'd love to learn more about that, also in a uh, private conversation about what you're doing there. I I know this would be interesting for quite some people in our personal circles. And also, my gosh, the alleviation of such great pain and suffering that something like that could bring. That's wonderful, Alexandra. Yeah. And the company is actually quite close to you. They're based in uh, San Diego. Yes. Um, I would absolutely love to learn more. These all sound incredible and it really piques my interest into learning more what criteria you use to evaluate and select preclinical stage biotech companies for investment so from my perspective and i can't speak for for everyone but from my perspective and i really evaluate the science first Mm-hmm. Uh, I really want to believe that the signs and the evidence that this is really a promising longevity drug is is true before looking at all the other factors of whether the team is right and the strategy is right and all of that. Because at the end, we're investing in the science and the team can always be complemented. You can always hire more people if needed. But if the, the science isn't right and if it's not true and if it's not reproducible, then you're investing in a dead horse. So I don't want to do, I don't want to risk that. So what we're also doing sometimes is we run what we call killer experiments, basically just to convince ourselves that this is really true. This really has uh, the promised benefit. Also because there is a challenge with some research not, not being reproducible. Like you see an experiment that a certain lab has done and you repeat it in a different lab, and it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't show the same results. But sometimes this even shows a different result based on the way you're measuring it or the, the type of cells you're using or whatnot. So it's it's always a little bit tricky. So we really want to validate the science first. Once mm-hmm. that is really clear and we believe that this is the right mechanism, this will have an impact scientifically or biologically, then we look at what I mentioned earlier, we look at IP. Can we build an IP strategy around this mechanism, around the target, around the drug that has been discovered? Because ultimately that's what you need to really create value in the pharmaceutical industry. And then the last point, which is really important, is how are you going to bring this into the clinic? Because Mm -hmm. if your strategy is that you want to measure lifespan, 
or in in humans, then it's very tricky, right? It's will it will be extremely costly, and it's it's maybe not a, a viable or scalable solution to developing your drug. So you, ideally, you can find a strategy based on a genetic disease that is associated with the same target. Say there is a, a genetic disease where autophagy is just naturally downregulated. And so an autophagy inducer will naturally have a beneficial effect in these patients. Just an example. I, I, I'm not sure there is one specific disease. There, there are probably a few diseases where that's the case, but I wouldn't be able to name one. And, and the other uh, strategy that you could pursue is if you find a specific biomarker that suggests that your patients will benefit from a drug. Say there, there is a good example in the cancer therapy space with the immunotherapies that I don't know if, if your listeners are familiar with that, the, these immune checkpoint inhibitors. And, and there is there are certain ways to that tumors have found to evade the immune system and they're expressing certain receptors on their surface that kind of give a, a don't eat me signal to the immune system. And if you block that, the immune system can go back and eliminate the cancer. And these are these immune checkpoint inhibitors where now you, they were initially used for skin cancers, but now you actually know that they would basically help any person with a cancer that is expressing this don't eat me signal. Mm-hmm. So now you don't have to just test it in all kinds of cancers. You can just select the patients that have the tumor with that signal and give it to specifically those patients, and you have a very high success rate in, in those. And, and that's the idea if you're using a biomarker to select your patients, because for instance, you measure, and, and it's not, currently not really possible, but if you could measure levels of autophagy and only treat the, the people who have low autophagy, then that would be an ideal way to maximize your probability of success in a clinical trial, because then you would know these patients are very likely to benefit from an autophagy inducer. You mentioned it just a couple of minutes ago. A huge challenge is to actually do a study on things that affect, let's say, longevity, if you take longevity itself as a marker of success, because it's just too long, too costly. You'll have, and at the beginning of our conversation, you also mentioned the issue with IP. You won't have IP anymore. Other on top of that, what are some of the other big challenges that you face when trans- translating longevity research into practical interventions? So first of all, the main objective for us as a, and as an investor is to get the drug into the clinic and ideally get it approved or at least demonstrate clinical proof of concept, meaning show efficacy that your drug is really helping patients in order for bigger partners to step in and help us develop these drugs. So that's our main objective. That's what we really want to put our money towards. But if that is a rare genetic disease, our mission is not done. And so we always, the challenge that we are facing as having that mission to extend health span is that while we are putting our money towards this primary goal of getting these drugs into the clinic and and demonstrating this clinical proof of concept, at the same time, on the side, we want to demonstrate that it doesn't only work in this disease. It, there is enough evidence for us to build on data that shows that these drugs also affect health span, at least in animals. Like we want to demonstrate that 
we are affecting some aspects of house band. Ideally, we run a mouse study where we show that our compounds make these mice live longer and healthier just to make sure that there's this additional potential of this drug that is real, that can be realized even though we have this primary uh, goal. And, and that's always a little bit tricky because uh, depending on which investors you bring in, you, you really want to make sure that everyone is aligned with this overall goal of making sure that this drug can ultimately be used to make people healthier. And that can only be done if there's more funding in the space, because as long as the funding is coming from mostly people who are focused on just one disease at a time, it's very hard to get it to the point where we can use it for health span. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has also to do the the intentions or also the attitudes of investors or the public policymakers in general. It's evolving right now. And thank goodness it is. And it's leaps and bounds from where it was five to 10 years from now, but we still have a long way to go. Since this is what you eat, live, breathe, and you literally have your finger on the pulse of this evolution, how do you see the field of longevity and health span extension evolving over the next decade? Oh, it's been crazy how much more interest there is since we started. We started in 2017. Back then, we were very niche and nobody really talked about longevity. Nobody really knew what it was, what it meant. And now it's like everyone is talking about it. Wherever I go, if I go to the Middle East or if I go even here in Cape Town, like if I talk about longevity, everyone's, oh yeah, autophagy and intermittent fasting and all of that. People are aware and and that's the first step, right? People are interested. They they realize that there's something in it for them as well. And even friends are telling me if Apollo is successful, we'll all be successful as a result because eventually these drugs will be available to hopefully everyone. I see a lot more funding and a lot more funds developing in that space. And not all of them are purely focused on biotech like we are or biotech and health tech. There are a lot of funds that are also focused more on like the consumer facing side or more broadly on different aspects of longevity and in aging societies. And I think generally what this will all contribute to is this new vision of what healthcare will look like. And basically, and, and this is really something that we are also hoping to be driving is that you will go to your regular physical checkup. Um, you'll get a blood draw and you'll be able to assess where you are on your health score or on your aging score or whatever. And not only will you know where you are, you'll know exactly why you are there and what you can do to improve it. Because that's a challenge right now that we have. We can measure different ways of, besides lifestyle interventions like, oh, exercise more, watch your diet and sleep better. There's no real actionable insights yet, at least not validated, that a physician could give you. And so that that's the ultimate goal. You get your health score measured and you get your basically your, your aging fingerprint that then gives your physician the insights of what do you specifically need to do to age better? Is it more exercise? If so, what type of exercise? Is it different nutrition? Is it certain supplements? 
Are you lacking certain vitamins? Do you need some pharmacological enhancers or molecules that, or other interventions? You need a plasma therapy or whatnot or a stem cell therapy to really get better. So these are the things that I, like over the next years will develop slowly. And I think we cannot really grasp how, like what the pace of it will be because technology is developing so quickly. But hopefully within the next decade, we'll see a significant shift towards this new model of healthcare. Absolutely. I'm all, I'm with you. I am super excited about all of these ev- developments and just witnessing as we stand on the brink of potentially extending human lifespan significantly in a way that most people can't even imagine. Most people think, okay, I'm going to live maybe a few years longer than my parents, but we're literally talking about decades potentially, and not just one or two. Some scientists today say that as technology progresses and as we shift our healthcare model from what it is right now, which is really a sick care model that's reactionary to one that is proactive and prevent preventative, things are drastically going to change. And I think it's really worthwhile to think about deeply what this newfound abundance in years you know, having time, how it may transform our perception of life stages, of our ambitions, of our goals, of how we have relationships. And the impacts are huge on how we live our daily lives, how we as nations, as cultures proceed. And I'd like to hear from you, Alexandra, how do you think extended longevity might alter our traditional views of, for example, life's milestones or education, career, retirement? Oh, that's such an important question. And I think we should all be aware that predictions are so hard. Like, I wouldn't have been able to predict how the world looks like today, 30 years ago. Like, the amount of changes that we witnessed as a generation of the internet developing from modems with, like, to where we are now with a little cell phone in our hand that can basically do everything. It's just incredible. And like that, that even happened within a decade or two, right? And what the amount of interest that is going into the space now is it's just really starting and it's just going to grow bigger. And I think we are already seeing some of the developments, but of course, I think there is a lot of other stakeholders that have to get involved to really build the future of what it will look like. Education has to change completely because people will probably want to continue education as they get older, learn new things. The way we're living, the way we're currently thinking about retirement will change completely. Maybe people don't want to retire. Maybe there will be a completely new model of work. So I I can't really predict this. It's not, I can't even predict what's going to happen on the drug front, even though that's my specialty. I think it will just happen like incrementally. There will just be slow changes here and there. And in 10 years, we'll look back and just think, wow, it's just crazy how much happened. But we'll just not realize it as it's happening. Absolutely. Just some food for thought for the audience. If you look at really practical things, let's say social security systems, right? Or health insurance, all kinds of things that are going to 
that the economic impact alone of extending lifespan is tremendous. Uh, so many things are going to shift from the personal life that we've just touched upon to economics. The I think it was, gosh, I don't remember the number. I had a conversation last year with Dr. David Sinclair, and he gave me an astounding number of if you can extend the lifespan for X amount of years for one human being, what that would positively economically do as far as the impact goes. And the numbers were staggering to have people instead of them being sick and languishing for the last 10, 15 years of their lives, because extending health span goes hand in hand with extending lifespan, to have people who are productive members of society. And maybe not necessarily in the conventional way as in like you work from nine to five, but you may find other things you're passionate about. It could be raising your grandchildren or even great-grandchildren. It could be learning more. It could be offering whatever your talents are to the greater community. Of course, uh, then we come... Uh, uh, yeah, it's just yeah. Uh, the mind boggles. It, it's important to emphasize that People are not going to be forced to work longer. I think people would want to work longer because they can still pursue their passions because they're still vital and functional and resilient. They're still motivated. They're still useful. And, and, and I think that's what shouldn't be disregarded when you're talking about this, because I think a lot of people, when they think about retirement, like they're looking forward to, oh, yeah, I'm going to retire. It's going to be so relaxing and I'm going to be so tired anyway. But Imagine you won't be tired. Imagine you actually full of energy and full of motivation and ideas and things that you can do to change the world. And you don't want to stop. You just want to continue doing the things you love. Yes. Continue growing, evolving, experiencing life with those you love most, your friends, your family. I see the a beautiful vision of that arising. Now, of course, if we look at this eternal quest of humanity for the fountain of youth, this desire to extend human life, it also raises some really profound ethical questions from the allocation of uh, what right now are finite resources to the potential widening of the socioeconomic divides. Um, you, uh, some people bring up overpopulation. What are your thoughts on these ethical concerns that many people have? We get asked these questions all the time, and, and there are valid ethical concerns if we were to really keep everything the same and just extend lifespans, which, which we're already doing now, right? The current pharmaceutical system is extending lifespans, keeping all other things equal. And so that is actually causing this huge economic burden of people being chronically ill for longer. So that's something that we need to fix. And so if we were to just make sure people can stay healthier longer and even women can stay reproductive for longer, then maybe we will actually get into a new balance of birth rates and maybe that will actually balance out. We don't know that yet. And, and there will probably be no way to predict what will happen, uh, especially as you mentioned, the... the um, the inequity that may also change, especially as as the, the global economy and technologies are developing, that maybe there will be a a, a beneficial shift towards more equity. Um, 
but it, it's so hard to make predictions because there's going to be so many different things that are changing as we are keeping ourselves healthier for longer. And I believe that if we are aware that we can stay healthy for longer, maybe that also shifts our mindsets to focus on the health of our planet mm-hmm. and, and really make sure that we are we live more sustainable lives because we will be around to witness what is happening if we don't. And hopefully this shift in thinking will truly also affect how we see ourselves within the context of this living, breathing organism that is our planet, that we're part of, instead of just putting our focus outwards. All right, let's find the next place we can go to and wreck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but... I have to say, I'm quite excited about space exploration as well. And I think there's a big relevance for longevity treatments there as well. So if you want to travel to another planet, you better make sure you have your aging under control because otherwise you may not make it. Absolutely. And I think part of these extending the human lifespan also goes hand in hand with affecting human evolution. So hopefully on a psychological level, because living a substantially longer life will definitely have an effect on our thought processes, on our mental health, hopefully on our perspective of how we operate as human beings, as consumers, physically. And I'm really curious, obviously we can't know right now, but if we just play a little bit in our heads, of you in a science fiction type of way, I'm really curious how a significantly extended human lifespan will affect the future course of human evolution. Oh, it's a super interesting question. I, I wouldn't dare to guess w- what it would look like. We have been extending our lifespan already over the past centuries, and we're seeing what it's doing now. I think we cannot really grasp it yet. I'm sure there will be very interesting new ways of how we are living and how we're working as a human community that it's it would be really interesting to see a movie made about that absolutely and to bring it back to a today and a personal level how has all of the work in this field affected your personal life alexandra and your approach to being healthy to maybe even biohacking so i am doing a lot of like obvious things, like I'm wearing health trackers, like an Oura Ring or Apple Watch, like getting all of my metrics. And not because I can immediately use them right now. Of course, I can look at my sleep score and all of that. But I believe that as we're learning more about the data that we are generating from our wearables, eventually they will become really helpful to um diagnose certain changes. Like I'm, I'm basically collecting my baseline right now. I'm basically collecting my healthy baseline for the case that in a later point, I want to know what did I actually look like five years ago when I was still healthy or 10 years ago or whatever. And uh, at the same time, uh, what I'm obviously doing a lot of exercise, trying to be as, trying to eat as nutritious as possible, whole foods, low processed foods, trying to have a regular sleep schedule. I think having these 
I think one important aspect is the circadian rhythm. And we want to make sure we keep our circadian rhythm constant. And so routines are very important. Sleep time, wake up time, and so on. But this, those are really basic things. And I think everyone could probably do that. Regarding like the more high-tech or pharmacological interventions, I'm really hoping that within the next few years, we'll learn a lot more about what I told you the future of health will look like. Basically, you go to your physician, you get your checkup, and you know exactly what you need to do. Basically, precision longevity medicine. So not just personalized, not just, oh, are you women? Are you, what age are you? But really, what, based on your genetics, based on your current biomarker profiles, do you need to do to get back to your peak healthy state? And until that is available, right now, I'm mostly looking at, do I have any genetic risk factors? Are there any things that I should be taking to mitigate those risk factors in some ways. For instance, autoimmune disease, there are some things that you can do. There is there are some some genetic factors that you can help supplementing with B vitamins, for instance. Just taking these regular things for women, sometimes iron, they're low in iron. So like just these regular things that you can get on your regular checkup, you know you have some deficiencies. Vitamin D is a big one as well. And just supplement where you can, getting to your optimal levels. And then hopefully in a few years, we'll have better ways to personalize and also new interventions that you can then use based on your own genetics, based on your own risk factors and biomarkers that you will mostly benefit. Yes, excellent. I can't wait for that time to arrive either, even though I do probably two, three uh, pretty in-depth blood labs a year. I just last year did a complete scan from head to toe, really interesting company, Pranuvo. That was a fascinating experience just to get a baseline what's going on in my body. So I do a lot of these things, yet still it sometimes feels, especially when you look at supplementation or pharmacological intervention, Still is feels a little bit like throwing darts into the dark. So I cannot wait for those times yeah. to arrive. I definitely know whatever I'm doing is having an effect. I feel amazing. My my cognitive function is great. All the things that matter are working really well. And I would say even better than 10, 15 years ago. However, I really look forward to actually putting way more precision into that. And Alexander getting quantitative. Getting quantitative results. I think we're already on our way there. I think what you mentioned, Pranuvo, and all of these new health tech technologies that are measuring and developing new ways of assessing health, I think that's already what I was talking about, the future of healthcare. And just once they are able to mix this diagnosis with the right recommendations, I think that's when we're there. Absolutely. And I'm really, I'm, I love what I do I love talking to individuals like yourself and learning. I get exposed to so many different things and I get invited to try th things. So it's really, I just love it. It makes me super happy. And it's really part of my practice to be a kind of guinea pig <laughs> and try new interventions out, new things, new supplements or practices. And 
That being said, there's a question I ask every guest on this podcast, and that is, is there any practice, something you could have had for many years, something new you've come across that has really up-leveled your life mentally, physically, or spiritually that you'd be willing to share with us? Oh, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm fairly conservative in terms of new practices. So the one practice that I feel is helping me personally the most is routines. Just mm -hmm. having a regular routine where you don't have to think about what you're doing. You basically prepare everything in advance and you just blindly follow your routine. Similar with my supplements, I basically pack them once a week for the whole week and I just take my box in the morning, know which pills I'm taking at what time and just do it every day at the same time in the same way. And that just really helps making everything more easy. I think it's a little bit like, Similar to what Brian Johnson is saying about his blueprint, basically taking, like leaving it up to the algorithm to run his day. I think that's really helpful in terms of not wasting your mental power. Yes. To think. 100%. I think that is so smart. I think uh, scientists have explained there's a limited amount of decisions that our brain can make before getting fatigued. And when you think about it, there's especially something as simple, in quotation marks, as driving. Your brain literally has to make hundreds of decisions in minutes to keep you safe or walking across the street or taking care of household chores or you're at work. So whatever you can automate, make into a routine, not only will make it easier for your brain, it'll also make it easier for you to stick with it. Keep it simple. That's a smart way of doing that. So I subscribe to that too. Alexandra, thank you so much for making time for us and for this really fascinating conversation. I'm very excited to hear what will be happening with Apollo Health Ventures, what kind of things you're going to help bring to the market and literally change our lives. So thank you for everything that you do and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.